When Edgar Allan Poe wrote The Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1841, he single-handedly invented the mystery genre as we know it today. Charles Dickens included a mystery subplot in his 1853 novel Bleak House, and Wilkie Collins' 1859 novel The Woman in White is generally credited as the first mystery novel. In 1887, Arthur Conan Doyle introduced the world to Sherlock Holmes, the first consulting detective. In the 20th century, Raymond Chandler gave us Philip Marlowe, and Dashiell Hammett gave us Sam Spade. The early days of the mystery genre are dominated by male writers and male protagonists. In the dawn of the 21st century, we find a mystery genre that's much better balanced, where women, both as writers and detective characters, play a part equally, if not more important, than their male counterparts. My guests today are two of the mystery genre's groundbreaking women writers, Marsha Muller and Laurie R. King. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies, let's start at the beginning. How did each of you start reading, and what led you to the mystery genre, maybe as a reader or a writer? Lori? Oh, I've always been a reader um, of all sorts of things. I didn't actually start reading mysteries until I was um, maybe into my 20s. Um, I, I tended to read a lot of biographies, and science fiction was my great love as a kid. But I found the uh, the mystery world called out to me more as I as I got a little older, um, moved away from the Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Marcia, I got started as a girl reading um, mysteries by, well, Judy Bolton mysteries by Margaret Sutton and of course the Nancy Drews, and um, went away from it for a number of years, but came back as um, an adult, when someone gave me a copy of a Ross McDonald book to take on a long bus ride, I almost missed my destination and <laughs> stayed on the bus. Now, these books, uh, you referred to Nancy Drew, specifically written to appeal to girls as mysteries. I'm wondering, when you were handed the Ross McDonald book, what did you think? I was fascinated by it. I'd never read a private eye novel before. And uh, just learning about someone who was a professional yet wasn't stricter, didn't have the strictures of the police procedural where they had to do everything above board and above the law. Um, the character was not exceptionally well-developed. I never felt I could get inside his head, and that was one of the reasons why I decided to go ahead and try to do a private eye novel with a character who was essentially a real person. Lori, what made you start writing a detective novel? I didn't know that's what I was doing when I first started. And I think it, I think this is very common among mystery writers, that we don't know that we're mystery writers until we actually find a publisher willing to buy them and find that we're headed towards that shelf in the bookstore. Um, I started writing with uh, the main character of Mary Russell, a uh, young girl who meets Sherlock Holmes and becomes his apprentice. Although my first book that I published was about a, a cop in San Francisco. So obviously both of those belong in the mystery department, but I simply saw, thought of them as novels. I didn't really think of them as being crime novels as opposed to you know, great literary works or romance or whatever. It didn't really occur to me that you divide and conquer the publishing world. One of the things that's interesting to me is the, private, the definition of the private eye. He's a man. He's unmarried. He has an assistant. <laughs> uh, this, that's how it started. I'm looking at March's face here. Okay. okay. Well, not anymore. 
the genre has become so an area where you can do so much more now. You know, private eyes are women, they're men, they're married, they're unmarried. Uh, my husband, Bill Pranzini's private eye, recently adopted a child. It, the, the loner with the bottle in the desk drawer is no longer. Well, you actually were the first woman writer to introduce a consulting private investigator. Uh, Sharon McCone, isn't that right? Actually not. Uh, there was a short story by Maxine O'Callaghan mm-hmm. introducing Delilah West, who later starred in a number of books that Maxine produced, and that was in 1974, I think in Ellery Queen or Alfred Hitchcock magazine. Um, my first novel came out in 1977, although I'd been trying with short stories forever, but I couldn't get any of the magazines to take them. Now, what led you to enter the fray, to go up against the guys? I didn't really see it as going up against the guys. I um, basically wanted to write a private eye novel, and private eyes, while they all were men, I knew I couldn't write one because I wasn't a man. I, I really don't know all this guy stuff. So I just decided, well, maybe a woman would be a little different and somebody might actually buy the thing. Now, Lori, you did an analogous thing to what Marsha did in that you went back and inserted a woman into the very first detective ever created, his timeline. Why did you do that? That's a pretty scary thing to do, isn't it? Oh... We, we women, you know, we, we're, we're secretly very brave. Um, if you're talking about Mary Russell, um, yes, she is the, the sort of female equivalent of Sherlock Holmes. She, was, she is what Holmes would look like if he were a 20th century feminist female and younger. I, I mean, so therefore she's clearly the superior model of the two. Um, she she and he have very similar minds, and what you're looking at in these books are two characters whose who's sort of brain um, runs along the same lines. And the differences between them are partly to do with personality and partly to do with their sex. Um, and it's the differences, of course, that are fun to play with as a writer, and I suppose as a reader. Well, since you brought it up, Laurie, I'd like both of you to address the role of feminism that it plays in your works that maybe brought you to start writing mysteries or bring women into the mystery genre and where it plays in your works. Feminism. Um, I There's a woman who runs a website that is devoted to the Russell stuff, and she has a... I'm probably the only writer out there whose website begins with a the theological disclaimer. It's probably... <laughs> <laughs> the wo- the woman loves the book. She loves the Russell books, but she has real troubles with the word feminism. She really mm. has problems with this idea. Well, I recently wrote a book which has been classified as a, a science fiction. It's a futuristic novel in which all the men die off. Not all of them, just a few. And we, uh-huh. we have to sort of be careful of the ones that are left. So we, we baby them, and we don't let them do dangerous things with axes and trees. And you know. So you do so have it out for us. I, I, <laughs> I, I treasure the few men that are in the world. Um, and so I, as, a, as a sort of um, 
sidebar to the novel, which is called Califia's Daughters, and you won't find it under Laurie King except on the website. Um, it's under Lee Richards. We won't go into it. Um, I wrote a small essay on feminism and put it on the website. Well, this woman who runs the, um, the, the Russell website writes back to me saying that, well, if, if she'd really realized that this was what I had in mind with feminism, she never would have disagreed. <laughs> because basically what it says is feminism is nothing else than saying if you do the same job as a man, you get the same pay. Marsha? Feminism played a big role in my starting out simply because the world was changing. It, I, it was the height of the feminist movement, the, the very beginning of it, and people were getting really involved. And suddenly I was looking around and seeing, oh, yeah, there, there's a female cop. There's you know a female prosecuting attorney. And then a woman came to buy my dishwasher in response to an ad, and she was a female private eye. So the books are a direct response to what the atmosphere that feminism had created that allowed me to actually see people of the sort that I wanted to write about. Were you aware of it when you when you wrote the McCone stories? I mean, were you aware that this was um that she was a woman in a man's world, as it were? Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did and you? there were a lot of things she had to contend with and remarks mostly in the early books, because that has gone away a lot. But, you know, what's a nice girl like you doing in a job like this? Mm -hmm. And she talks about the choices she made that would not have been everyone's choices and how they changed her life. Let's talk about the marital status <laughs> of our female investigators. Uh, well, I have a <laughs> kind of a surprise coming for people who have about McCone's marital status. And without saying what her decision will be, Hi Rapinski has been pressuring for them to have more of a commitment, and he's waiting for her answer. The C word. Lori? Um, it, it is, as you say, it's, it's sort of a cliche that um, any main character in a, in a crime novel has to be a loner and completely independent in all ways. I think that was a uh, an exaggerated um, use of the independent theme. Um, you have to be an independent person to be the protagonist of a novel. You have to go it alone to some extent. On the other hand, the whole business of not having any relationships outside the crime is very unrealistic. Even those who are, are sort of pathologically... <laughs> <laughs> you know, solitary um, have have a community, so that with um, the the characters that I write, I've got um, the two series and three standalone novels, and in all of them, the main characters are essentially solitary people, but they are also linked with others. So that Russell um, eventually marries Holmes as a partner. Um, Kate Martinelli, the San Francisco cop, has a permanent partnership. The the standalone novels, the people in there, have problems with relationships, but don't we all? Um, I think that the 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 role of the PI um, that you found a lot in the 40s and 50s, they happen to be mostly male, but that 
that no longer really applies. Even, you know, even Kinsey Milhone has friends. <laughs> yeah, I I agree totally with that. Uh, Sharon McCone runs a big investigative agency. She's constantly hiring new people, and this makes her job easier so that she can go out and actually pursue the bad guys very actively, but without the people at the agency who tend to be her friends and tend to form a community, a family, so to speak. She she would really be in trouble with some of the cases she encounters, especially since she really doesn't like to use computers. This is something (laughs) that that's interesting, that both of you have spoke about this, the sense of community. I, I really noticed that in The Dangerous Hour, your latest novel, Marsha, where the agency is essentially one big semi-happy family, or semi-dysfunctional family as well. <laughs> Could you talk about how you guys bring in a community and maybe why you're more likely to than Sam Spade and uh, Raymond Chandler? I think Possibly because a lot of women reinvented the genre. in term- They couldn't quite deal with the concept of the lone wolf detective. Um, we all have the community around us. And the, going by the old-fashioned convention would be just repeating someone else's work. So we added people. We brought people in. We made a very old tradition work in the context of our life. And I notice the male writers now are doing that. There are very few people doing the old-style, hard-boiled private eye. It's it's simply not happening, which makes it a lot more, more interesting because the characters are people we can relate to and enjoy. Corey? I think, as Marcia said, that you have this this image of the crime novel as being the hard-boiled private eye, I think, actually, if you looked at the last century, century and a half of the mystery world, um, you would find that that was somewhat of an anomaly. If you look back, and and I'm sorry, but you ask ask an academic an academic question, and you're going to get notes. Oh, good. Um, (laughs) If you look at at the sweep of what for lack of a better word, could be called crime fiction, you'll find a very, very heavy dependence on women. Um, we, for some reason, tend to think that um, that there were no crime writers before the 1980s. But if you look at the, um, at the beginning, I mean, you have a woman named Anna Catherine Green, who, of course, nobody's read anymore, but she was publishing long before Conan Doyle. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have Carolyn Wells, who wrote 80 books. You've got, of course, the the big four. You've got Agatha Christie, um, Marjorie Allingham, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, and Josephine Tay, and, of course, Niall Marsh out of, out of New Zealand. The Americans had Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Minion Eberhardt and Phoebe Atwood Taylor. Now, these are names that are not as well known as Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, um, but they certainly sold a long over a long period of time and a lot of books so that I think you could argue that the publishing world was dominated by women for such a long time. You also have, of course, there's half a dozen very well-known writers who everyone assumes are men and were not. Um, <laughs> David Frome, E.X. Ferris, Craig Rice, Charles Leonard, Anthony Gilbert. Those are all women. 
Oh, really? Now, yeah. I, yeah. I've read yeah. some Anthony Gilbert. I mean, there's, there's you know, 250 books, mm-hmm. all of them in from the time of the 20s on through the 70s, and they're all women. What's now, interesting with Craig Rice, too, is that she wrote incredibly hard-boiled stuff for the Times, mm-hmm. and in 1946, her picture appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and a lot of people were really surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's the only crime writer who's been on the cover of Time, isn't she? She was certainly the first. Yeah. I, I was trying to figure that out, and I can't co- come up with anybody else. Yeah. Now, one big difference between m- the m- female characters and many of the writers you cited and both of your work is amateur sleuths versus professional sleuths. You ladies have both created and uh, forged the professional sleuth, the professional female sleuth. I wonder if you care to talk about that. Well, I I, I beg to differ. Um, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Actually, you know, Russell is very much in the tradition of the amateur sleuth. She's not a professional, right? She is an she is um, an amateur in all senses of the word. The word being based on the word love. Someone who does it for the love of the action. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not trained as a professional. She's often dragged into the cases kicking and screaming because she'd rather be with her books in the Bodleian Library. Um, so she is very much in the tradition of the amateur sleuth. Obviously, Kate Martinelli is not. She's a cop, um, a homicide detective with the San Francisco Police Department. So she is um, is a pro. But the... The three standalones are all amateurs as well, so sorry. (laughs) Marsha? Well, while I'm best known for Sharon McCone, who is a professional, I've done two other series where the protagonists were amateur sleuths. Um, One was a curator of a Hispanic art museum, Elena Oliveras, and the other, Joanna Stark, was a partner in a firm that did security for art museums. Both of those ended with three books each simply because I couldn't justify them stumbling over dead bodies or getting into these incredibly dangerous situations endlessly. And I felt that the internal personal story that was woven into the crimes, once that ended, in the case of the Stark series, I I couldn't go any further because they would have turned into just very pedestrian amateur sleuths. This is always a problem with amateur sleuths, unless you have some reason to get involved with something. And even even a PI, I mean, I think Marsha does it magnificently, but it's very tricky to get a PI involved in a murder case. I mean... By law, it's quite often just simply not allowed. So as a writer, you have to decide whether you're going to, you know, sort of cheat or whether you're going to follow what, in fact, are the rules of the state of California and uh, in order to get your person involved. And this leads me to another question. Both of you have written multiple series, switched around. Why? How? What? brings those decisions on. Marsha, you're on to yet another series now that's location-based, not based on a person. For me, in the beginning, the reason I was doing multiple series was simply that publishers were not paying that well for mysteries at that point, and I needed to support myself. I had had an editorial services company in partnership with another writer, 
and the business had dropped off, so I needed something to bring in that income. Um, later on, it was at the suggestion of the publisher that I might like to try my hand at something different, simply because they were afraid I'd get very stale on Sharon McCone. And it certainly has helped in going off creating a fictional county that I kind of cut up the California coast and sandwiched between Mendocino and Humboldt, <laughs> um, doing multiple viewpoints, creating characters out of whole cloth rather than ongoing series characters, which with each of those books, I stretch a little bit, and then I come back to McCone, and I see ways to keep it fresh and things to do. Lori, what brought you to go from Mary Russell to Kate Martinelli and I, back again? I have a very low threshold of boredom. Um, I think if mm-hmm. I had to, it, you know, if you sat down and said, okay, you've got a great idea for a character, you have to write 26 of them because there's 26 in the alphabet, you know, I'd probably <laughs> just put a gun to my head and say that was it. I tend to alternate um, between the Russells and standalones or Russells and Martinelli's. Um, this past year, I've actually done two Russells in a row, which is unusual for me because normally by the time I get to the end of a book, I'm really tired of the characters. I'm tired of the language and the thought patterns, and I really need to do something different. Um, As it happened, these two that I've done in a row, both the Russells, I managed to get around the, the, the problem of being tired of them by putting them in extremely different places so that the first one is set in India and the second in San Francisco. Um, and that, that worked for me, but I don't know that I could just plunge straight into a third one. I really need a break. Um, also, when you're doing different series, generally, you're doing different things with them. So that the Russell books, for example, are, I mean, they're, they're deliberately meant to be light entertaining. They're funny. I mean, they, they, they make me laugh. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> they may not entertain anyone else, but I get the jokes, um, and although they may have serious themes in them, they are intended to be humorous. The Martinellis, on the other hand, are much more solid, straightforward American-style um, crime stories. And the standalones are in between. I mean, they are... The standalone is a whole world in the, the covers of a single book so that you can do things in them that you can't in a series... And on the other hand, you, you can't do things in them that you can in a series. So um, as, a, as a writer, I find it necessary to shift gears a lot. Both of you deal with current-day events in your most recent novels. Marcia, you have a, a delightful take on what's called Fajita Gate <laughs> <laughs> in The Dangerous Hour. That was fun. <laughs> and uh, Laurie... You did a, a, a very interesting thing in the latest Mary Russell novel by essentially setting the whole thing where uh, currently U.S. troops are scouring the land for hoping to find Osama bin Laden. And you even mentioned the idea of helping militia types who might turn against us, as did Mr. bin Laden. It's always <laughs> nice when readers catch things, isn't it, Marcia? Don't, yes. don't you love it when you put something in there and think, 
nobody will ever notice this. And then you're asked it in the question, you think, ah, it's okay. In keeping with the theme of this show, I'll have to say that my wife mentioned that to me first. Okay. (laughs) Very good. She caught it, yeah. Um, it's, It's one of the things that I love to do in a book is to add a dimension by, especially because I'm working historicals in the Russell series. I'm doing stuff that's said in the teens and 20s, which, of course, is as far as most people is concern, are concerned, is pretty dead. But you get these very interesting themes that run through that period and how, I mean, when I was first writing The Beekeeper's Apprentice, the very first in this series, I felt like what I was reading in that post-World War One period was from the 60s. I mean, it was so similar to what I knew, the changes that society went through, um, the women's movement changes were immense, and the parallels were fascinating. And so when I'm writing, I have one eye to that sort of thing, the themes that you can call on um, similar between one time and, and now. Marcia? I tend to set my books in the absolute now when I'm writing them. In fact, one year I finished the book on the day, the exact day that it was taking place, and, of course, in, with the McCone series, doing one every other year, if someone really looked and saw Saturday, July 9th or whatever, and kept track of that from book to book, they'd realize she's getting one year older for every two years that elapse. And I, I just hope they sort of will accept or suspend their disbelief and accept that. But I do like to do topical things. I like to talk about what's going on. Um, this last book I got yelled at on my website for my politics, and if I ever <laughs> express my political views again, she'll never read me. You know, it's wonderful to be able to push those little buttons, because if you are, if people aren't indifferent to the work, it, it means they're getting something out of it, whether they agree with it or not. And of course, I can rant about anything that bothered me that morning in the newspaper. And speaking of politics, one of the main features of mystery fiction are the politics and practices of aggression, of violence, of murder. These are not qualities that are typically associated with the feminine sex. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That surprises me. Okay, well. Oh, my. When you think of the uh, Victorian murderesses. (laughs) Please, please expound. Well, just extremely vicious poisoning, stabbings. There there are volumes written about this. It's continued on to present day. Um, Maybe there aren't as many of us acting out in those ways, but there certainly are. Could you talk about how you, in in your novels, uh, violence, you don't see violence in the same way you'll see it, say, in a George Pelicanos novel. How do you make those decisions and why? Hmm. Mainly it's, I guess, it's with me, it's my comfort level in what I want to read. You know, I, I really don't enjoy reading lovingly crafted descriptions of murder and mayhem. And I think that the reader will imagine whatever he or she wants to. Sometimes it's much more effective to let the reader use his or her imagination than it is to go into the details of blood and gore. 
I know I can scare myself a lot more if the curtain is just moving a little bit and there's something behind there than if it's suddenly whipped aside and I see who's there. Lori? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, the, the whole modern um, addiction to, um, to, to really overt brutality is a problem both for me, both as a reader and as a writer. Um, as Marcia says, it usually doesn't work as a means of of giving the reader the creeps. Usually, it just hardens the reader to what you know what the writer is actually trying to get across. So that subtle um, subtle cruelties are often more effective at expressing the personality of the bad guy than having him, you know, take a take a saw to a corpse. I, I, you know, the the more understated and intense, the better, normally. Um, you also have to take into account what you're trying to do in the book. If you are looking at... Um, at brutality and cruelty, then yes, you have to write those kind of scenes. So that in in the science fiction book I just did, um, Caliphia's Daughters, you have women who step into all of the positions that men normally did, including that of being brutal. So that I have a scene in there which is very brutal and was uncomfortable to write. Um, it would not go in the sorts of mix- mysteries that I do. That would be um, it would it would glare and not fit with the pattern that I'm that I'm trying to write because normally what I write as with what Marsha writes is looking at the effect of um, of an act on the people and the solution of it, not just being battered over the head with it. This then brings up another topic: romance and sexuality. Marcia, your your work, the Sharon McCone novels, have a have a very nicely understated theme of romance running through them, with Sharon and, and High. And Laurie, your novels, of course, the Kate Martinelli novels, deal with sexuality in a way that's unusual for the mystery genre. At least was when you started. Maybe less, certainly less so now. Could you talk about the way that you approach that, and maybe the way kind contrast that maybe to the way that you see it happening in a, in a works by male writers, if it is different. Mm-hmm. I began, began approaching the whole romance sexuality issue mainly by blundering around because Sharon McCone kept being attracted to these men who were perfectly just awful. <laughs> There, there was a police lieutenant who called. I wasn't going to say anything, Marcia, but <laughs> oh no, I, I've often chastised her for this. But just dreadful, dreadful man, and it, it was brought home to me, it coincidentally, on a radio show when the woman who was to be interviewing me stomped out of the studio, stomped up to me, looked me up and down, and said, "How could you let her go to bed with George?" <laughs> So I I basically experimented and blundered around until in one book, a character who uh, 
was only supposed to be there as a suspect kept showing a kind of chemistry. Both of them seemed to be very drawn together, and that was Hyrapinski, who has insisted on remaining around ever since. But the relationship with them, what works for me is that while they are very close to the point where she will be able to sense things about him at great distances, and he her, they're also very independent of each other. They function well without the other. And this enables her to go out and do what she has to and still remain in a committed relationship. Lori, tell us about Kate. <laughs> you want to know about sex, huh? <laughs> um, as you say, I mean, I write, I write the one series that has to do with the lesbian relationship, and that... I I think that mostly I, it's been a while since I've worked through those, but so I have to remember. I think mostly the sex in that is fairly understated, as it is in the Russell books. I mean, you you have um, the these are written as if by an older woman looking back at her youth, and because she's English and very proper, um, there are many things she doesn't say, so that. You have this very hot scene between her and her husband Sherlock Holmes as they sit in a chair and he caresses her fingers. I mean, this is this is about as steamy as those books get. Um, <laughs> hot stuff. But you have to consider the the setting. I mean, an overt sex scene would just not go in those books because she wouldn't write them. I mean, you have to you have to work with the characters you have. On the other hand, um, there's one of the standalone books called *The Darker Place* that required a very vivid sex scene, um, the kind that when I handed the book to my mother, I thought, "I don't know about this." <laughs> <laughs> and as for my daughter, I really don't know about this. You know, it involves duct tape and things like that. Um, <laughs> oh my! But it it was. It was a necessary part of the, this woman's relationship with her, basically what is an FBI handler, um, in order to become a different person so that it is necessary in the context of the book. Um, and I think that's, that's pretty much, I mean, you use sex the way you use anything else in writing. You, you, you use what they're doing in the kitchen um, to underscore the investigation um, ideally, nothing in a book is either out of place or wasted, and that goes from sex to setting the table. It's the concept of will this further the reader's knowledge about the character, uh, deepen their understanding about why the character does what she does, does it further the plot, or are we just simply plunking a sex scene in there because after 50 pages... Maybe they expect it. You know, this is the romance writing approach where they actually have tip sheets for the writers. And it says, after so many pages, you must have a sex scene. After so many pages, you must. This is for the, the very traditional romances. Um, sometimes this can stop the whole action. Well, surely that's something you want to avoid. Yeah. I want Even for sex, you can't stop the action. That's right. <laughs> We're making him blush. <laughs> Fortunately, this is radio. They can't see that. 
I wonder if the two of you would talk about the image of the female sleuth and how it's developed and changed in the courses of your careers, which have been fairly long. Hmm. Marsha, you started out there back in the 70s. You know, there, there were burning bras and jumping in the streets. Uh, so tell us, Granny, how was it? <laughs> <laughs> how was it back then? Yeah, we were talking about that a little earlier, that, you know, some of us wish those days would come back. Um, you know, Sharon McCombs' career is an illustration of how the female sleuth has changed. In, in the first book, one of the reviewers referred to her as something of a cheerleader. She was, oh, I'm excited about being a private eye, and I'm just running around having the best time in the world. Uh, as the books progressed, she became more cynical, more mature, and certainly more professional. Um, now she's running this entire agency and is very concerned about developing that and endangers our being protective of it because it's her very survival of the agency is threatened. So I, I think that we've progressed a long way from being something of a novelty or to being very much part of the world. One of the things I liked about the Dangerous Hour was the aspect that of Sharon McCone as a manager. I really like that, that <laughs> she spent a, far, a big part of her being a private eye at this point is managing this huge staff that she has. Yes, I have fun with it trying to see how she gets around the various personalities because all of her employees are very different, how sometimes she'll trick them into doing what she wants or mediate things between them. Um, she loves pushing people around. I love to, though, in, in that book how you have this interesting dialogue in inside this one person. On the one hand, she really is frightened of the idea of commitment to to her lover. On the other hand, she is about as committed as any can, one can possibly be. I mean, she's got all kinds of people who are dependent on her for their their self-image, for their income, for their food on their table. She is absolutely willing and and interested in keeping her family in, of the professional sort together um, in a way that your traditional PI manager certainly would not be. I mean, if a male were writing that book in the 50s, um, you'd never see any interplay between the main character and the others. But so here's this fascinating woman who, on the one hand, is is committed to all kinds of people in all sorts of ways, and yet this one this one last area of her life she's unwilling to give. And of course, she is committed to high. She they own a house together. They built a house together. They spend all their time that they can together. But she doesn't seem to realize it. And I think it's only through examining her other commitments that she reaches the point of, here I have all of these other people, and I'm ne and I also have a very dysfunctional family of my own. But I'm not letting this man into my life, the one person who is the most important. Which is why she crumbles a little bit at the end. <laughs> Lori. Could you tell us about the commitments that your uh, Mary Russell makes and that uh, Kate Martinelli makes? 
There, uh, the 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 Russell books begin when Russell's only fifteen, and I did that deliberately, even though um, it's a problem. It, when <laughs> when people who are new to this series find out that here's this fifteen year old who later marries the man, it begin. It sounds a little kinky, <laughs> just a little bit kinky. Um, I think it works. I'm satisfied with how it works in the book, and I I think people who actually read the books find that they're okay. But you are tracing this young woman who is very independent. She is an orphan. She has lost her entire family. She has um, become who she wants to be um, under her own power. And she then is faced with this link to a man who she has no doubt will will change her life so that the second in the series a monstrous regiment of women she is all about her decision between being an independent woman and being a, a sort of affiliate of of Sherlock Holmes um and i think that's the sort of thing that you find in a lot of crime fiction is this question about um do i take a secondary position sometimes or do I not? There was one really lovely book written by Linda Grant, um, A Woman's Place, I think. Yes. Which uh, has handled it better than anyone I've seen. She has um, a problem at the end, and she has no hesitation whatsoever of calling on strong men to help her. And I thought this was such a liberating thing in the context of a novel to have a woman who is quite independent enough to call for for help. Yes, I I remember back, Bill and I did a book together called Double with his nameless detective and Sharon McCone. And throughout this whole book, Sharon kept detecting and nameless had nothing to do and we had to send him (laughs) off someplace to do something to Mexico or somewhere. And then at the end, they're out in the desert in extreme peril. And Sharon is shot, and he saves her. Well, I I, well, I was in trouble. You know, a lot of people were very angry that you let a man save her because we were putting new strictures upon ourselves, saying a woman detective must never be saved. She must never call on a man for assistance. And to me, that was breaking through that whole thing and saying, let's not confine ourselves. Let's not break the old rules and then manufacture new ones that are going to hem us in. Now, that's an interesting thought. One thing both of you have observed in your long careers is the way the publishing world deals with women writers, or with you as writers, with mysteries writers. It's changed drastically since the 70s. I could you talk about that, uh, the changes, and how you feel that as woman mystery writers, I mean, back in the 70s, it might have been something more of a novelty, I would think, but now, I mean, it's bestseller time. I think mysteries were treated differently then. They weren't expected to sell in great numbers. A lot of publishers only sold mysteries to libraries, It was perceived of as a very small market. Then you had the specialty stores coming along, mystery bookstores, which pushed more new writers into the public eye. Now it's 
the lines of the genre are basically blurring between mystery fiction and mainstream fiction, as some people would call it. The uh, one thing that you have to keep in mind, Rick, is that I, I am I am probably should be considered the next generation from Marsha. I mean, oh, we're I not understand that, that different for in our ages, but I I didn't publish until ninety three. So when when the nineties came along, women have have sort of edged around the forty to fifty percent um in terms of numbers of titles. Um ever since that time. I mean, Marsha was the, the part of that, the big wave of the 80s. In fact, there's a, if you don't mind me throwing a oh, few numbers at you, good. interesting um, numbers of women, uh, crime titles by women. Uh, the 1910s, there were 14 of them, mostly by the same woman. I think that was Catherine Green. <laughs> she was a busy lady. Um, the 20s had 46, so you had a tripling. The 30s, 168. The 40s, 271, and it then went down. The 50s, 202, 60s, 240. Uh, 70s, a little bit of a gain, 289 titles by women. And the 80s, it went from 289 to 793. Mm. So between the 70s and 80s, it was a great deal of, uh, of makeup to do as far as women's um, titles were, were to do. And I, now I think it's up, up to roughly 48 46%. Although, interestingly enough, the reviews do not reflect that. The San Francisco Chronicle, for example, has about 26% of their crime titles are by women. Interesting. Which I think is a very shameful thing. Um, so, you know, the the number of women who are writing now um, is roughly, roughly equal. Marcia, tell us about your career. In well... When I was starting out, there was a woman who later became my first editor named Michelle Slung who did a very good anthology called Crime on Her Mind. Michelle Slung, right. Yeah, short stories about women, sleuths by women, and she included a bibliography, which I then picked up and started reading because I was starting to write. And um, at that time, there weren't that many books authored by women with strong women protagonists. Women had always been writing, but typically would write about males. Um, writers such as Lee Brackett or Dolores Hitchens, who were writing very hard-boiled males, but for some reason felt they could not sell if they used female protagonists. It started to change in the 70s. Um, Lillian O'Donnell and Dorothy Unak both were writing New York police women. UNAC went on to become a bestseller with her series or with her non-series books, and it, it just gradually opened up to the point where I could send this thing out and think, well, maybe someone will want this. Coincidentally, I sent, it, or not so coincidentally, I knew Michelle Slong was interested in this sort of thing, and she was with David McKay Company at the time, and I sent it to her, the first one, and she just accepted it right away. So it didn't even make the rounds of a number of publishers because I had targeted an editor. But um, then it all started to change in the 80s, as the figures reflect. And I think if it was, I think that 
again, it was a reflection of the real world. It had changed, and publishers were starting to see that and accept it. I wonder if each of you could tell me what's coming up in the future for you in the genre, out of the genre, what you're working on, what we can expect. Lori. Um, well, as Kate I, Martinelli. As, oh, dear Kate, dear Kate. Uh, next year's book will be set in San Francisco, but it's in the 20s. So Russell and Holmes go from India in the game to San Francisco in locked rooms. Um, and it was an interesting book because it has to do with Russell's own past. Um, so it was interesting to write. Part of it, in fact, is third person and follows Holmes and a gentleman who occasionally did some work for the Pinkertons, who later went on to become rather famous, named Dashiell Hammett. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and we were talking about the next one. It's possible I will be doing another Martinelli at some point. Um, they don't sell as well, so the publishers drag their feet. But it's we're playing with ideas, so... Um, all kinds of things. Will there be any more science fiction? If this one sells well, they may. I had originally envisioned it as the middle uh, in a trilogy, and um, it's possible they may pick up one and three, but at some point I'll have to push them on it and say, <clears throat> now's the time to make the decision. <laughs> <laughs> Marcia? Uh, next year's book is called Cape Perdido, and it's set in yet another part of my fictional Soledad County. Um, after that, I'll be starting a new Macon, which will be set on the Central Coast, probably the San Luis area. And Bill and I are also doing a collection of Western short stories with a collaborative story as the centerpiece in that. We, we've both done quite a number of Westerns. He's done Western novels. And um, I had one collection come out last year, which the small press was pleased enough with it, they asked us to do another. Uh, who published that? That was Five Star. Five Star Press. Yeah. And what was the collection? Time of the Wolves. Time of the Wolves. Well, we look forward to both your new novels. We've been speaking with Marsha Mahler and Laurie R. King, the two women of mystery. It's been nice speaking with you ladies. Thank you. Thank you.